Bigger than cakes. Give me some more silence. Welcome to Bigger Than Capes. I'm Angela and this week we have an interview with Brian Haberlin who has been writing some of our favourite work at the moment. Um, hello. Hello. Thanks for um, having me. Excellent. We're, we're really glad to have you. I have many questions. We generally start off with a very basic question, um, a very generalised question, which is what got you into comics in the first place? as a reader and then as a creator, assuming that you read them before you created them, it would make <laughs> sense. I think my very, very first experience was as a very young kid uh, on a family vacation like you do in the States. Everyone piles into a station wagon, goes to see the Grand Canyon or something like that. And, and I was probably 10 or something like that. And there was a spinner rack and it was a Superboy comic. And, oh, you know, yeah, you know, especially then, because it's so dismissive, right? It's like, it's 25 cents. It's like, yeah, kid, shut up here. Take this, you know. But Kurt Swan and Superboy didn't do it for me. And I didn't pick up another comic book until uh, high school age. So wow. that's probably 15. Uh, and then I had friends that were very, very, very much into comics. And they cherry picked all the best of the best to guarantee that I was hooked. You know, they, they start and, and, you know, one was, I worked with quite often, uh, Brian Holguin, uh, it was Kevin Holguin and Brian Holguin, uh, his younger brother, um, who we worked on, we created Aria together and a bunch of other stuff, you know? Um, but, um, so it was like, here's Jim Starlin's early work. You know, here's the, the Avengers, here's, you know, uh, you know, my friend was a big Gil Kane fan, so we went through all Gil Kane stuff, and uh, and I was like, okay, give me more, what's, what's the next thing? It's like, oh, there's one called Daredevil, and it's like, Daredevil, what's that about? It's this blind lawyer who fights crime at night, it's like, why do I want to read that? And it was Frank Miller's run on Daredevil, and I was like, okay, <laughs> you know, and, um, and I just started consuming it. Uh, we were blessed in, because uh, I've Back then, I lived about a half hour drive from Hollywood, and there was this bookstore called Bond Street Books, and it sold movie placards and headshots of actors, but it also had comics. And they had almost every comic that had ever been done, not bagged and bored, but in these boxes. And we could go and go through all these books. When I was 16, I could tell you exactly what inker is inking who without looking at any credits, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, so, so I, I love that. And back then, because we're talking late 70s, um, if you were an artist and you wanted to do sci-fi and fantasy and that kind of stuff, the only jobs you could get would be covers of, 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 of novels or, uh, or comics. Because really, there weren't a lot of sci-fi movies back then yet. You know, I mean, Star Wars had hit a few years before that, and and you know, no one was really. I mean, the art departments were small, and you weren't going to get. It. And plus, I was always kind of like, oh, look, you know, I know who Ralph McQuarrie is, but 
Ralph's name is way down at the end of that movie, you know, and it's like, and, and I kind of didn't dig that either, you know? Um, so I went around with my portfolio at uh, age 18, uh, Jim Shooter and John Romita Sr. offered me a penciling job at, at Marvel, uh, which I did not take because it was $35 a page. There's no internet back then, really no FedEx hardly back then. You had to move to Manhattan, to New York, uh and again they wouldn't guarantee you work 35 dollars a page and i went to film school instead so i have a master's degree in screenwriting uh and i started working in uh in television so i was in comedy and sort of drama series development at lorimar television which was the granddaddy of all the television companies we were eventually purchased and became warner brothers television where i worked in current programs on dozens and dozens of shows um and i realized i didn't want to be a television executive and so i was always working on the computer uh aspect new ways of doing comics and stuff like that and so i'd have you know in my in my office there'd also be my amigo or my whatever computer was at the time working on new 3d models or new pressure sensitive coloring techniques or whatever we could do and I'd go down to San Diego with my portfolio in hand and, and get rejected like everybody else. Um, and then when you're a dear, dear friend of mine uh, who's no longer with us, Rod Underhill, had a small press uh, booth. And he said, you want to join me in the small press booth rather than looking around your portfolio? And I go, great, okay. And I had a, a CRT uh, old monitor, which was about this big, but about three times deeper <laughs> and probably weighed 150 pounds. Uh, and that had a 3D model animated spawn coming down from the ceiling that would repeat. And I had behind me this really big inkjet print of a, a green lantern with 3D model glowing wings behind him and a 3D model power battery glowing behind him and stuff. And again, the year before, rejected by everybody, that year, everybody and their mother offered me work. And Amazing. I went with Mark Silvestri. And the drag was, you know, of course, I always wanted to be a penciler, not a colorist. And uh, back then, there weren't a lot of people who had samples that were pencil ink in color. And it's like, what do you want to do? I want a pencil. Well, you know, you can start my computer coloring department. How about that? You know, and that's what I did. And I figured it was an in, right? And yeah, that kind of kind of worked. But the problem is, I and this shouldn't sound. I hope it doesn't sound egotistical. It's just the way it was. I got to the top of the pile really, really, really fast, and it became, especially back then, colorists could make a lot of money. Um, yeah, and it was a velvet coffin for a while for me to claw out of that. Listen. <laughs> I can do the writing bit and I can do the, I can do the others. I can do all the other stuff. You know, I don't need to just yeah. do this bit. You know, I, 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 I don't want to just hook you guys up anymore, you know, but it was a great, you know, it was a great business for me for a while while it worked. We had a big coloring studio. We did all the original Marvel Knights stuff. We did, you know, spawn for a hundred and something issues. Um, you know, uh, and then I left uh, Top Cow and I created, co-created Witchblade while I was there. Uh, and then left Top Cow. Uh, actually, Hellcop first appeared when I was there uh, in Ballistic Imagery, which we did a little anthology book, and there was a short Hellcop story that I digitally painted before I was ready to digitally paint anything. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then Wills Protesio and I started Avalon Comics, where we did Aria, Stone, Hellcop again. Um, 
and uh, The Wicked and uh, M-Rex with uh, Duncan Rouleau and Joe, Joe Kelly and, and some really, really fun stuff. Uh, and then, you know, as business relationships go, sometimes they go bad. So that kind of, you know, okay, this is more, more effort than it's worth. Uh, I'm going to go back and run my coloring studio again for a while. And then I uh, took the job as editor-in-chief for Todd McFarlane and ran his comic company for a while. And then uh, Brian Holguin, jumping back to full circle, and I were going to do uh, a comic series based on McFarlane's dragons uh, toys that he was making. These really nice dragons toys. And I started doing that with Brian, and I turned the pages to Todd, and Todd be like, yeah, you know, but the, the guy who's doing this dragon book is pretty good. I think maybe he should do Spawn. You know, like, Todd, you know, but that's me, right? <laughs> and so, no dragons book, but then I started on Spawn and, and penciled neat Spawn with David Hine doing the uh, writing chores for, for two years. Mm. And then, funny. and then I was trying to get, it was right when Robert Kirkman and Todd were starting their haunt comic. And they were trying to, it was right when, that was right when DC and Marvel had huge exclusivity wars. People were, anybody who was any good was locked up. You know, I call people up, you know, you want to do this book? Yeah, I'd love to do it. When are you available? Three years from now. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can't do that. And they'd be in meetings with Todd uh, and Robert with a new artist that were trying to get on maybe. And Todd would be going, yeah, but you don't want to be known for doing Stan and Jack's characters. You want to be known for doing your own characters. And, and Robert, of course, would chime in with the same thing. And I was like, and I'd be sitting in the back of I used to do my own characters. I, I think I have to leave. You know, and in 2010, I left and started Anomaly Productions. And that's how and you've ended up with this, yeah. Creator owned since then, you know. I mean, our, yeah, first, yeah. our first beast of a, I mean, and the early ones all had like augmented reality. Like this is, this is, actually, this is yeah. the second Anomaly graphic novel, but huge beast. <laughs> That yeah. is impressively large. Full landscape, fully painted. Wow. And also has augmented reality. So you point out the characters come out of the pages and all that kind of stuff. So those were our big go-home start books at the end of the day. But I kind of found in in the business, so I thought people would really like that. You know, it's like, okay, I don't have to go to the store every, every month. I don't have to find individual issues. I can get it all in one go. Yeah. And it really kind of is a... Uh, round peg in a square hole uh, for that. The the audience likes comics, you know? And they like the way comics are. And then they're fine with trade collections after that and stuff like that, but people who like comics like comics. Yeah. Yeah. So, so everything since... I think we did the... We did three original graphic novel ones. We did Anomaly 1, Anomaly 2, Shifter. Uh, we did a prose illustrated book called Between Worlds that we released through Penguin Editions. Uh, but ever since then, it's all been comics again. It's all been comics. But yeah. com comic readers want to read comics, which is... Yeah, and it's, you know, and it's how, I mean, the economics of it, too, is just how, how the industry is set to work, you know? It's how, I mean, yeah. most, that's what comic book stores are built around, that Wednesday, that, you know... Wednesday Warriors, yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well. So yeah. That that's that's a really good answer actually. That's one of the best answers we've had because that's uh, the fact that I you, also you though know. I didn't remember until later because I always give Todd and Robert credit for you got to do your own book, but I didn't re remember until later a friend of mine Andy Horn uh, in ninety 
it was probably right that year where I was getting hired. Uh, he, he knew Stan Lee. And when we were walking from, if you've ever been to San Diego Comic-Con, there's the convention center and there's the two big hotels around it that most people try and stay at. And there's always walking back and forth between those hotels. And and I was with my friend Andy who knew Stan and Stan was walking by himself back then. He was like, oh, Stan, you got to look at my friend's work and stuff like that. And Stan himself said, you know, do your own stuff. You got to do your own stuff. You got to create new things, you know? So, okay. So I'll, I'll, I'll hark it back to Stan Lee now. <laughs> <laughs> We'll blame him a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Because um, that was that was one thing we wanted to ask was because Hellcop has a long and involved history that you've touched on there. Um, because this isn't a recent idea you've had, is it? This has been going for 30 years, is it? Yeah. I, I remember having... I, I once ghost wrote a... With my writing partner back then, because you know, I went to film school and stuff like that, uh, Evan Carlos Summers uh, did uh, some writing for Deep Space Nine, and I was ghostwriting one of those, and I remember being on the promenade where we had Top Cow, and we were sitting out there, and I go, I got this idea, okay, <laughs> hell's not really what you think it is, okay, and he was like, that's brilliant, do that, you know, but so. But you've, you've finally got there with it now. Yeah, I mean, it was when we did Avalon for the first time around. I mean, I did the first, first, first little one that was in ballistic imagery. But like I said, uh, before I was ready to really do that. Um, I also look back at like the cover for the first Witchblade and go, oh, that's not really good digital painting. <laughs> um, but um, uh, so when Wilson and I formed Avalon and we were going to throw it, because we really wanted to have like, different genres at once with the wicked was horror aria was fantasy stone was superhero and and uh hell cop was sci-fi you know um and uh i was running the company at the time and going over all the production color and writing stone at the same time i didn't have time to do my baby and uh it, i mean we put in the capable hands of of, of joe casey and, and gilbert monsanto but I never got to do my baby, and I've always wanted to do my baby. And if, and, if, and if you look through my sketchbooks over the decades, there's always hell cops. There's always Virgil in there in some way, shape, or form. Some with the long tassel uh, sideburns that he used to have uh, in the books, um, and some not. Um, but there's always a Virgil in there. And there's been fits, always been fits and starts of, oh, I'm going to do it. Nah, something else gets in the way. I'm going to do it. Nah, and get in the way. But. But after doing, you know, Fashion Light and Sonata, and I mean, now I'm good enough to do it. So that was part of the thing, too, I think. Yeah, I was going to say what's finally pushed you to get it out there, having had to give your baby away, as it were, or let someone else look after it for a bit. Yeah, because, I mean, people, in which they were talking about, you know, should we collect the original miniseries? And it's like, it's like another, again, it's like another reality, pardon the pun. You know, it's it's not... It's not like it links to this one. I think it would just confuse people, you know. So it's like, yeah, no. Leave leave it where it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That that makes sense. Um, so you and I don't about... mean to be disparaging about it and, no. and saying that it's not good. It's just not. It's this. not what that is. It's it's more yeah, like I said, different reality. And yeah. I think a lot of people they see a title of a comic and they assume it's the same as one that they're more familiar with in the present. And obviously, if it's that different, like I say, just confusion reigns, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. 
And it's, I mean, almost a good comparison is it what is what the Walking Dead comic is to the Walking Dead TV show. Mm. Yeah, they're kind of the same thing, but they're <laughs> alternate reality versions. I think you know. Sort yeah, of. yeah, but, it's they have the same basic DNA in there, but the way that it's been portrayed is is different yeah it you can you can recognize that this is a walking dead and that's a walking dead but yeah it does feel like alternate universe versions that's a good analogy i like that okay. i'll steal that one okay. next, All next yours. thank you um so obviously virgil's appeared in the sketchbooks a lot um and you mentioned sort of as well that you obviously have done screenwriting how how is virgil as a character so sort of, has he evolved at all or has he, obviously he's changed his sideburns, um, <laughs> but has he as a character changed, would you say, from sort of the initial thoughts you had through to who he is today? Uh, again, you know, my prototype, I mean, his his name is his name for a reason. And my prototype for him is Steve McQueen's character in The Great Escape. You know, he's Virgil Hiltz, you know, uh, that we, we, we make that... Uh, we make that uh, his parents having been Steve McQueen fans and naming him that. That's not, you know, but there's a direct link there as well. Uh, he's a pretty cool customer. Um, I, th I think originally I was going to have him be, I mean, decades ago, a little more dour, a little bit more sort of self-destructive, you know, a little bit more about the whole wife thing, you know. Uh, and I still wanted to have the wife thing in here and it probably will still will reoccur again at some point again. You know, like I almost started issue six with him at her grave saying goodbye again. But I thought, hey, we've done it. You know, it's like, you know, maybe maybe I'll do something, something else, which you always seems kind of open with the way I've set up hell and, and the other planes and stuff, you know. Um, but uh but yeah, he's 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 more confident, I think, than he was in the original series. I think he's more, you know, if you had to lean him towards like, I was kind of like that sort of. Uh, it was like the the first. Um, oh God, what's his name? Uh, that first of the recent mummy movies no i'm saying recent now that's decades ago but you know the 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 brendan the, fraser character yeah yeah, 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 yeah. yeah i like i like that tone you know uh and and that tone and it's funny because because you know over the years i've had so many I've, i mean hellcop was in feature development for years with gail ann hurd back in the back in the 90s uh three years she optioned mm. it um and then finally they told us what they wanted to do with it. And I told my manager, because they, they, they literally had like two days left in the option because she lost her financing, so she couldn't do it again. And we want to take it out. And they pitched me what finally what they were going to do with it. And I got off the phone. Oh, okay, great, great. Got off the phone, talked to my, my, my entertainment manager. I go, I wouldn't make that with their money. <laughs> Stall. <laughs> and they stalled. And they had like one day to try and go around and sell it. And they couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Good. Excellent. It paid off. It was, yeah, it was just, I mean, it was, when you do this stuff for long, especially if you're a creator, because you always get Hollywood people knocking on your door one way, shape, or form. And half the time, you know, oh, it's great. I love it. Da, 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 and they come back to you with finally what their quote unquote their take is, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, why didn't you just offer to buy the title? 
Well, you know, it's got nothing to do with the story. It's got nothing to do with the characters. Why? Why did you even do that? But anyway, but yeah, Virgil, um, he's he's much lighter than he was originally. Um, much more confident. He's he's our rock, I think, right now. Um, uh, but he has support. You know, he's got Taj, and he's now got Gladys, who's gonna you know get in there a bit more. Um, uh, Gladys was actually in the original, a version of her was in the original one. Uh, so I knew, you know, I knew Karen, we were going to get rid of Karen at some point. So I, I had to fill that, that void at some point. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I have to say I wasn't overly attached to Karen. <laughs> no, I made Karen, I made Karen kind of mean. I mean, we did, I mean, we mentioned this when we discussed, um, the first trade volume one is we did like how the dead wife thing is there. But I did like how you didn't linger on it because I think sometimes people can take the dead wife concept and just run it into the ground. And yeah, I think it was it was really nicely balanced with Virgil because he does like I say he's he is a rock, and it is nice that he's got this past and he's got that information. But it's nice also not to just you know, oh no, he's got the dead wife. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we really we like that, um, and we also like Taj as well. Um, yeah. Uh, particularly the way that you know laxatives are very useful <laughs> to get rid of <laughs> someone you don't want to. Was she in the original concept, or is she come out a guy. later on? Taj was a guy in the original concept. So she's been gender flipped, as it were. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. it works better, and it's like I just uh, you know I love exploring a good uh, male female relationship that's not really a sexual one. You know, they're just friends. They're close friends and they can literally tell each other anything, even though sometimes, you know, like, okay, I don't want to hear so much about that part, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, uh, yeah, I, I, I enjoy that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It is nice. Cause so often you get this, you know, male, female, and it's all, will they, won't they sexual tension, but it is really refreshing to just have these really good friends um and just have that relationship be really good friends and they work really well as really good yeah. friends as well yeah um so that was good let's let's talk about some of those hell creatures though <laughs> where on earth did the, i need to ask about the flying pigs with the little punk hairdos <laughs> because those really stuck out to me <laughs> <laughs> I, Where I just, on earth did that come I, from? I just, you know, it was. I, I think it was in a promo thing that I first thought of it, and it had something to do when you know when when pigs fly, kind of thing. And it's like, okay, <laughs> if pigs are going to fly anywhere, this is where they're going to fly. So let's let's do that. And it's just it's just fun, you know. Them and I mean, I I, I love I love the cherubs, and I love uh, you know, you know. Uh, yeah. And I love those things. I love. I love. I mean, the opportunities to throw in. And I love the the big sphinx. I mean, because we we're gonna. I mean, there's so many things that when I work on this stuff, uh, the whole th glob of clay will be usually bigger right up to when I have to finally send it out to the printer. So there'll be things in there that don't make it, even on an individual issue basis. I'm, I don't. I don't work as far ahead as I should because I'm very, very fast. Um, and so sometimes that's not the best of things production wise, but I like, I like having a whole bunch of stuff at the end. You kind of look at and go, 
yeah, okay, we don't really need that. We can pull that out and stuff. Because um, I like that whole Sphinx character too, the big three-headed footing giant face thing. Because I have there's a huge backstory to to it and 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 all that stuff. I mean, in fact, there was like a I don't know if I have them up anymore. I don't think I do. Um, the there was original four page teaser I did for retailers, and that's how it ended up with them talking to him and again he had to be bribed with certain uh, oh one thing in your review that that and i think it might be a branding issue you thought it was sugar it's saccharin it's the artificial it's the artificial sugar yes i would go back and correct that i'll make a note it's it's the it's the because i figured oh yeah they probably don't have sweet and low over there they thought it was sugar we do but it comes in like it does look exactly, but it comes in specific. We don't have it in the little packets. If anything comes in a little packet, yeah. it is sugar. It, the sweetener uh, stuff we have, like it comes in little the plastic packs that you click, and it comes out in little tablets. So that's yeah. Generally, you can get the powdered stuff, but it comes in a little weird coffee-like jar. Um, so yeah, there we go. I'm glad you corrected that. That's good to know. It's super <laughs> so sweet. Yeah, it, it's not as simple as because I like I like the idea of this the artificial chemicals that they don't make on their side, which is what affects them completely different. Not just sugar would be a little too broad based. I think that's that's giving me a whole new appreciation of that <laughs> that plot. Um, and we we also like sort of the fact you have a three headed dog, and of course Cerberus and the three headed dog. We liked that Not idea. Not going to give anything away, but wait till you see issue seven. Yay. <laughs> yeah, that was, yeah. I mean, I have a dog. He doesn't have three heads, but, you know, I'm starting to think I've been I've been hard done by. I've got a dog with one head. Um, <laughs> so, you obviously, you mentioned that it's a very quick way of producing it. How does your process go with it in terms of the writing and then the art and then fiddling about with it? Because obviously it's digital, so that's a bit different to the traditional pen and ink. Although pen and ink these days is done on computer, isn't it? So yeah, um, yeah. Um, I I've always wanted to do 3D in comics, you know, because I always came from the beginning. As soon as you know Pixar started doing stuff, it's like, why are we still doing this when you know the people who used to do this for animation aren't doing that anymore you know they're doing this thing and the problem was over the years because i kept trying to do it kept trying to do it and you really couldn't do it until the last probably decade because they're just you know one when i was the amiga days when i used to have to 3d model and stuff it's it's was the tools weren't really there it was very hard to model anything um and uh and then if you decided oh, okay i want to do a book with 3d models of the backgrounds or 3d models of the character every single thing like okay you're in a, a normal room with chairs and, and whatever you'd have to model every single thing and it would just Oof. it just wouldn't work and, but now um there's huge uh, swaths of places that, okay a classroom okay 20 bucks i have a classroom great you know i can use that for a background you know or or things that i'll make myself if they're custom or things that i'll kit bash you know so just take a bit of that one take a bit of that one mush them together and, and make whatever so the philosophy that i have now is uh that i've come up with is it's basically i draw it once so i design the characters i do the texture map so every single thing you see in hellcop is a 3d model 
yeah. including the characters, all with all with uh, shader that I developed. So basically, I'll do all the drawn and then so we'll set that up, uh, and uh, then I'll do a pass with some handwork on top of it where necessary to kind of fix it up. But with that style, if you have all the assets done, you can easily do two pages a day and on a full eight hour day, you could probably do four if you weren't distracted with anything else. And that's just unheard of in the industry. No one's that fast, you know? Yeah. Um, and so it really gives you the opportunity. And, and what's really great too, as an artist, it also gives you the opportunity to, you know, I'll thumbnail everything out. Um, you know, like, these are some oh, yeah. pages for uh, Hellcop 8 um, that I'm working on right now. Um, and uh, and so it's, you know, starts with pencils just like that. Then I'll work on the individual panels and then uh, finalize the panels and then draw them and then composite them on a, on a, on a page. Yeah, but what's great about it is it gives you, you know, I have multiple 3D printers. Wow. This is Sonata. I was going to say, yeah, recognize that lady. So I can print my own collectibles. You know, I can animate them. I don't know if you've seen any of that commercial that I have with Virgil's talking yes. to, you know? Yeah. And I need to do more of those and I don't, um, but I should. Um, uh, so it really enables you as an individual creator uh, to do all this stuff that basically used to take a company to do. Yeah. A company of people. It's like now I, I've designed Virgil. I've gotten him all set. Okay, now I can pose him and with a little extra work and he's a collector statue, you know, or I can just do like with uh, right now, it's as easy as I'll show you. I'm not just checking my phone. <laughs> <laughs> we believe uh, you. Like, for example, this is a... Uh, program so I can do let's see if I can make this work so you can see it oh know. goodness so you can can you see my face now yeah my frame yeah so I can do record the voice and everything right there the expressions the whole nine yards and then be out Crazy. so it's kind of to me it feels like this is kind of the way I mean I you know I love hand-drawn animation too. I love claymation too. I love all the different styles. I don't think this is the style that replaces them all, but I think it's a viable alternative, you know? And, and, and there are a lot of people who do use it, but really kind of hide the fact that they do. Yeah, I was going to say, I suspect there are several <laughs> examples out there, but... You wouldn't know because they tend to, yeah, disguise it a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, people don't know that, like, back in the day when we were doing Marvel Knights, uh, uh, Joe Casada hired some guys to do, uh, back then, the, the, the modeling program of choice was SketchUp, and he hired guys to do Marvel sets. I have a library. I have the Helicarrier from S.H.I.E.L.D. with full interiors with medical rooms with things on them. I have Peter Parker's uh, apartment that has in as much details that it has post-its on the, on the refrigerator, you know, that level of yeah. detail. So, you know, Joe's been using it forever. He just, but he'll use it very much like, you know, I'll take it, blue line it, and then I'll ink over it, you know? Yeah. I like the idea of using it much, as much of it as I can 
without it getting crappy. Yeah. Because I, I have to say, I really like that sort of 3D style to it. It just, because I think one of the reasons, there isn't anything else out there that looks that style at the moment. And it just, visually, it really, I think, pops out at you a little bit. Well, and I'm really, I'm very lucky, you know, I mean, again, I, I think it's just my due. It's like I, for so many years, I hooked up pencilers and inkers with my coloring. And now I've got Jared Van Dyke, who I think is one of the best guys in the industry, you know, so. I was going to say, how does it work with his colouring? Because obviously, you know, it's it's a quick production. Um, I assume because you've worked with him on several different titles now. I assume you have quite a smooth teamwork going on. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, for the most part, he'll, he'll get the script and I'll send him pages as I go. And he'll send back pages. And usually I'll take a little bit of a pass on him, but usually it's just kind of I'm lightening something here or, you know, I'm not like recoloring things really, you know, I'm more just drawing attention here and there. Uh, and sometimes I don't even have to do that. Um, it's always one of those things that's, it's, you know, cause I've managed coloring studios and all that stuff before. And it's like one of those things is like, if I know I get a Jared page, I know I always have to lighten it to some degree. I'd rather have me know that than me tell him and have him trying to do compensate himself when he doesn't really exactly know it's better it's better for me to do the quick change you know than because i've run into that before where i've said okay no you got to change that and that and they overcompensate and it's harder to fix than it was before (laughs) but jared's brilliant he's i I think he's i think he's the best in the industry it's it is really good coloring it is yeah yeah um so sort of We've mentioned that you've worked with him before. You've worked with Francis Taganaga before. I probably pronounced that wrong. Yep. Um, is it is it good to keep working with people when you've sort of established that relationship previously and you've worked on stuff together before? I think so. You know, I mean, there's a lot of filmmakers that I think about it that way too. It's like once they have their DP and their, you know, they're the actors and actresses that they like to work with. You know, yeah, you know, keep going. Um, uh, and it just it, it just enables you to have a lot of shorthand. Like, I mean, you know, David and I, David High and I, we're, we're actually working on a uh, a marked Halloween special for this year right now. And, and you know, we seamlessly work stuff. And, you know, that But Trusted is another book that David and I are kind of working on in the future and stuff. Um, but uh, uh, David and I, I mean... You can almost complete your senses. The the guy who I, I miss, who's no longer around, not that means he's he's passed, but he just disappeared from the industry. Was Brian Holguin, because Brian used to be my kind of right on right hand writing buddy, and I was always one of those persons that would. And David and I do it too, but we kind of one up the idea. Is always yeah, that's always fun. You know, it's like you know, but what if it's oh yeah, I didn't think about that. You know, that's the fun part. You know. Like, I mean, Jared does yeah. that all the time. Like, he'll throw in reflections on things or stuff that I didn't put in, you know, that he'll just beautiful. Because I, I know he'll go, oh, he's going to do some really beautiful cast shadows. I know, I just know he's going to, you know, it's like. That was, that was actually the advantage of when I started at Top Cow. At Top Cow, when I started in 93, it was Top Cow and Wildstorm and Will Patacio's group were all in this one office. Uh, and it was like a, you know, cubicle offices, no high walls. 
and you could walk around and you know the the new kids on the block were like you know Jeff Campbell had just started and Travis Cheris and Joe Benitez and David Finch and Mark was there and Jim was there and you could go around and and learn from the very best at the time and what what got into me at that point was it was everyone's job along the way to better the product yeah uh and that's often lost and it's often lost today just because the money's not what it used to be you know it's like people you know it's like I mean, why I stopped? I, I stopped having a coloring studio for a reason. You know? <laughs> yeah. It was, uh, you know, because they would still demand that you do the same work that you used to get paid a lot more to do, uh, and uh, it just became untenable. But the philosophy of it's everyone's job to better the product and have that approach to it is, I think, what helps make things better. Yeah, it's it's always good to have people you can have confidence in their work as well. So to go to a previous book that you have worked on with David Hine and the the rest, Jules Verne's Lighthouse, which was kind of the first book we were aware of the marks and we have now we've gone back and read it, but Jules Verne's Lighthouse was kind of the book that sort of pinged with us a little bit. So that was the first one that we were familiar with as you as a group of creatives. I just want to know why. How on earth do you go from the classic book, Jules Verne, Lighthouse at the End of the World, to space? <laughs> well, I, I I wanted to put it in. It's in my anomaly universe. So it's in a corner of the conglomerate that is mentioned and talked about briefly in some of the big, the big graphic novel stuff that I was showing you. Um, yeah. And I've always... I've always love the idea it actually kind of i i i i'll confess that i saw the kirk douglas movie before i ever read the book so a lot of it actually is you know that probably more influenced some of it i don't know if you've ever saw that no i've seen many films with kirk you, douglas you i need find, to see you can this. find it on youtube it is it is it, it was a italian director at the time uh uh, Kurt Douglas plays the uh, the um, uh, uh, what's her face character. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna pronounce it wrong, but Vasquez. Vasquez, you got it. She, he plays Vasquez, and Yul Brenner plays the pirate captain. <laughs> Excellent. And the pirate captain, the most flamboyant for the time crew you would ever see in your life. Just surreal, weird, almost like from a surrealistic movie. Uh, and one of the things I pulled from that from that was he comes out of the after they've you know they've taken everybody out on the thing except for 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 Vasquez and uh, and the the pirate ship docks and out comes Yul Brenner and then out comes his horse white horse that they have a unicorn horn on it's like oh yeah i'm gonna have that <laughs> so that's where that came from yeah. i'm gonna have that that's cool <laughs> but no and then david and i started bouncing around we wanted to have a real damaged character you know and that's kind of in the essence of that book that's vast yeah. you know it's like you know, uh, and I, again, I don't think it's the best Jules Verne novel, but I like, I like the setup. 
You know, I think that's just a brilliant setup. It's like, it's just, it's like, duh. Yeah, let's just take control of the lighthouse and we just crash the ships right here and walk out and slash their throats and make the money. Great. You know, it's like, duh. <laughs> but then, you know, David and David, which is uh, one of David's strengths too, is like all the, the, the little, you know, going back to, you know, it's not really what you think it is, you know? And I mean, th these were probably the grayest characters that I've ever done, you know, where they really could kind of see both sides a little bit and maybe our hero's not so heroic and, you know, stuff. But, uh, but, but Moses is my favorite character in the whole thing. I, I love, I love Moses. Moses is just the glitchy nanny bot. Yes. Has to be one of my favorite robot characters in comics now. Just <laughs> so good. Because, of course, there isn't a Moses kind of equivalent in the original book, is there? No. It's, it's just... No, there was, there, was, there, was, there, was the, there was one... There was a person that he saved off. But, the mo but it was more like... That was more than the, the uh, What's-Her-Face character um, who, who came later. Um, but, yeah, Davis? there's no... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because they spend they spend a lot of time running around in caves in that book. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> they, and they spend time in caves in <laughs> in yeah. the comic. To they be do. fair, in a good way, I did like that parallel. Yeah, but again, and David, you know, David will send us like when he's doing something, he'll send us all the he, he sent like over all the real historical stuff that he gathered for Libertaria and from the our pirates mm -hmm. in Earth went for that and tried to do that. And it was like. I think it was like you know, one of the things that you sent me over. There was one of the first true democracies to ever exist mm. for a short period of time, of course. Um, but uh, but yeah, there's lots of lots of lots of uh, yeah. I just love turning that. St I love the you know because the conglomerate is bad in my in my anomaly universe. They are bad. They are very very bad. <laughs> yeah and. And the idea that, you know, she was involved in basically war crimes, you know, not necessarily from her volition, but, you know, and that and the, the, the conglomerate made these suits that were just so dangerous that they kill everybody that you're fighting against, but it also kills the person who's got the suit on. Yeah. You know? And the idea, too, that, you know, because that was one of the things was, is like the conglomerate, you know, you notice, okay, these are the horrible weapons that we're never going to use again, but we're going to go stash them someplace, which is where that ship was going. So in case, you know, just in case. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. Just, just in case. You never know. Just in case. Yeah. We can do more war crimes when we want to. Yeah. I mean, I did like the fact that, yeah, the, the pirates actually have a point. It, it They're not just, oh, pirates. It was, it was more that you, you they had a very strong legitimate reason i think that's why the ending hit so hard because yeah, yeah they, they actually weren't the they i mean they did bad things admittedly but they weren't out and out villainous types they had a uh, legitimate reasons for doing what they did yeah and then that ending <laughs> poor souls and poor vasquez who goes through it a bit it does feel like she tones a bit for her war crimes in what she has to go through, but yeah, still. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Moses just turns into a bit of a bit of a psychopath. 
<laughs> but in a, in a yeah, well, thinking. again, to, again, that was also from this. So ah. there, was, there was a moment with Crichton where oh, they wants to go back and get a curry in time, and it's like oh, yeah. causality and stuff, and it's like disable my uh, inhibitor chip, you know, it's like, and then Crichton's yeah. like, now I'm badass. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I can Again, see. Steal from the best. Well, you have to, don't you, really, sometimes? Yeah. yeah. And it works. It works very well. Um, so, just to touch on Sonata, I'm going to mm -hmm. pronounce that right. Because um, that feels uh, like it has more in common with Hellcop than perhaps um, Jules Verne's Lighthouse. I don't know. When I read it, I felt there was something there that reminded me themes-wise. Would you say there's any similarities between those two books? I think mostly the similarity between those two books is the any kind of Mobius influence. Uh, you know, again, hell is pretty much like those desert mesas that we have the birds flying through in, in you know, visually, I think. Yeah. Um, uh, and again, the way I play hell as just another place you know, um, uh, I think that, you know, because the world is just another world that they're, they're, they're trying to colonize. But other than that, I, I, I don't, I don't think so, so much. No. Yeah. No. Because with the, with the desert in Hellcop, is that based on deserts that you've seen and visited? Because it does feel like a real place. Is it based it, on anything or is it just, this is what I think a desert should look no, like? No, uh, you know, I've, you know, again, like I was saying before, you know, with the family vacations through the Southwest in the United States, it's like, you know, Monument Valley and all that stuff. And my, my in-laws uh, live in, uh, in basically Las Vegas area. So I've done many a time with the family <laughs> driving the kids to Las Vegas from here. And you drive through, you drive, you pass by, you pass by the, uh, you know, and that, the great, the Gorn versus Captain Kirk yes. episode with those, you drive by that, you know, and stuff. So yeah, I'm, I'm very familiar with yeah. you know, being based in Southern California, you know, Joshua tree, all these really, you know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it makes sense that hell is a desert where, and yet there's well, life I mean, in we it. We haven't been to most of it yet. I mean, we've only seen, I mean, that's it, because we have the Yetis now, don't we, coming in, who, I mean, it's got to be hard wandering around the desert with all that fur on, I would imagine. <laughs> the Sasquatch. Yeah. Well, you'll see their, you'll see their city in, in seven. Excellent. Was they, that... they, are, they are actually one of the more advanced civil, sand civilizations on, in the hell plane. Mm. So it kind of what, throws that stuff on its head. Was it a distinct choice then to go back? Because we obviously we spent a lot of time in hell in the first um, volume. Was it a conscious decision to open number six in the Pacific Northwest to try and bit of a contrast to what we had previously? Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to start a story that started in a different place. And it was, it was an idea that I had from the beginning of the series, you know, uh, there's, you know, that, you know, that the origins of things in hell are things that have crossed over and then become part of our cultural mythos because people make made up stories as to why they're there and what they did. And that we made all that 
the backstory up. They're just, what the fuck is this place? You know, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and quite often bounce back. Do we introduce uh, Angus at all over the phone with, uh, with Gladys? Is that, but is that an issue six? My assistant's out there. In issue six, where she's playing the game, she's playing with Angus. Yes, Ang yes. Angus, Angus uh, runs the Inverness uh, helicopter station. And ah, I'm gonna guess Loch Ness monster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's why you can't find the Loch Ness monster because it went home. <laughs> <laughs> That's why all those monster hunters have failed over the years. It went. Wanna, I'll tell you this because we may not ever see this because I might run out of time to do it. I always wanted to have an epilogue where you know, because I think I'm not gonna have space to do it. Where. Uh, Gladys is basically recapping, you know, what just happened um, on the, the finalization of the adventure that she's dealing with. And we pull back and she's talking to Angus and Angus is is on a on a boat on Loch Ness with a fishing pole and the line's going through a soft spot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's excellent. Finally, Hopefully I'll have space for it, but I might. <laughs> I'll keep my fingers crossed that you do have space, because I yeah. think that would be, yeah, that's excellent. I do like this idea that all these mythological creatures that people see, Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, they're just creatures that have dropped by from hell briefly. Yeah. yeah. So you've expanded out how So presumably you have ideas that stretch across the vastness that is Hellcop at the moment. Do you like have to keep notes of everything that's going on and where you're going? Or is it just does it just, you know, you write it? Do you have specific I think we talked, me and Zach, about whether or not there was some sort of overarching writer's Bible that you use to try and keep everything coherent? Um I kind of think I think in five issue arcs, because that's generally where we do for the trades. That's what inventory yeah. do. Um, it's either five or six, but it's usually five. Uh, so I think in five issue arcs. Um, and I also kind of, you know, I don't know if you've noticed, but, you know, page counts will fluctuate. Yeah. You know? I mean, that's the, one of the benefits of you doing it yourself. You get to decide how long it is, essentially. Um, so sometimes, depending on the story length, is, is what I'll have to fit in or, or not fit in. Or like I said, with the Angus thing, you know, maybe that's not going to make it, you know, uh, at the end of the day. Um, but no, there's, there's there's again, the, the, the first story arc was like the same story arc that I had set from the very beginning. It was, it was, it was a Chinatown story arc. It was about, you know, yeah. us basically, you know, we're the bad guys and the... Every all the hell creatures are basically the American Indians, and and you know, I have like I don't know if, if what do I have that. Hang on a second, give me one second. <laughs> yeah, so this is something that was from the nineties. So this was <laughs> oh top secret. Top secret. Ah. CIA. We have the, the, the first schematics of the reality engine. Oh, goodness me. We have. Wow. Uh. CIA report on dimensional security. And then we have uh, subject NSA usage of Tesla circuit attached Philadelphia project <laughs> info from circa 1943. First Tesla technology test. 
Wow. <laughs> oh, the, the, the pattern. Oh, my goodness. The pattern that all the details are in there. Yeah. That is an incredible level of detail. <laughs> but I think of all that, that kind of stuff. Because really, at the end of the day, you know, uh, depending, you know, because again, it's, it's all about, you know, to sales, you know. Yeah. Can't do it for free <laughs> at a certain point. And the last couple of ones have kind of gone up, you know, so we'll see how far it will go. But the, the and I wouldn't call it a spinoff, but we, in, in nine and 10, we finally get it so we can get start going to other dimensions. Yeah. Uh, but that's not going to be Virgil's group. That's going to be another group that will be on. But the dimensions that they can go to are all, it's based on the metaverse idea that whenever something is created, like a novel or whatever, it creates its own universe. And so, okay, yeah. and we set up, we set up in seven, I think seven, seven where we to the, uh, the reality bubble wand, where basically, because you know, if you think bring things back from hell, our physical model is different than hell, and, yeah. and vice versa. And uh, but our our new scientist character, who I based upon brains from uh, Thunderbirds, uh, develops a reality bubble. So if you turn this thing on, it'll make a a, a certain area now hell physics. So if you brought back your wand and you used it, <laughs> it works full blown rather than the little tiny bit that it would normally work. Um, but with this technology, it leads to us being able to start finally going to the other places. And But imagine people going into Wonderland and stealing something or imagine the red oh, yeah. getting out on Earth, you know? Yeah. So. Because I did like that when that was introduced uh, in issue six. Just I thought this has got potential to go to some interesting places if you can change reality in a specific little area, little bubble. That yeah. does open things up a little bit. Yeah, and imagine walking. I mean, the way I always kind of thought about it at one point was imagine like the British Museum, for example. You know, some bad guys have broken into it, and one guy is incredibly well dressed, kind of thing, and he's got that high tech kind of thing. As you walk by, you know, you, you go in these cases, and it's like, it's like, oh, this is a a sword from you know whatever BC, and it's just rusted little, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. But really, it's a magic sword, and when he walks by with the reality bubble, all of a sudden it becomes the full glowing sparkly thing okay i'll have that you know and 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 be able to then use that stuff and do bad things with it yeah yeah in the wrong hands that could yeah. turn out badly yeah yeah and i have to say i do like that scientist character and i can see now now you've said brains i'm like yes i can oh my god have you ever i mean i i saw this because uh, i've always loved you know jerry anderson stuff and uh I saw this documentary that was recently out for for uh, for on Super Mario Nation. It's on I think Netflix or whatever. And I never knew about uh, Joe ninety. Yeah. I never knew about Joe ninety before, and I never saw the Bishop, uh, the the secret the secret. Oh yeah, the secret. Oh my yeah. god. <laughs> 
Um, the Joe 90 thing is awesome because they showed this clip. Was like, so it's this 10-year-old who then yeah. can get into your body and control you. And they have this one shot where he's like stealing a MIG or some like Russian yeah, thing. Yeah, he does that a lot. I have, to, yeah. I, have to turn, I have to turn back to the base and deal with the base. And, and, and the CIA guy is going, yeah, go ahead, Joe, whatever you think. And he's like killing everybody on the base with missiles. And I think, that's a 10-year-old kid. <laughs> no, one ever lo- no one ever tackles the reality of this 10-year-old child who does literally murder people. Yeah. It's never brought up. No, I was never a fan of Joe 90. I think because when I first saw it, I was probably about 12 and I was a girl and it was like, ah, 10 year old boy. Um, but Secret yeah. Service, I adore Secret Service just because it's absolutely The whole idea is you have Jerry Anderson's clipping <laughs> describing, I forget what he called it, the, the mumbly. Erwinese, Erwinese, yeah. Irwin- Erwinese, because it was Stalin's oh point, and Unwinese, un- that was it, Unwinese. Unwinese, yes, yeah, yeah. But that was his whole shtick, that was what Stanley Unwin <laughs> did as a career, somehow. Um, the 60s were a different time. <laughs> and then and then Jerry Anderson loved him so much that he wrote the entire series based around that very concept that Stanley yeah. Unwin took nonsense to people. <laughs> and we're just flummoxed them. It's like Jerry Anderson goes, well, you know, the police were so polite back then. They were just kind of like, yes, 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 sir, yes, yes. Sir. <laughs> yeah, just absolutely ridiculous. It genuinely <laughs> is. Uh, oh, dear. Yes, no, uh, it's it, 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 it's timeless. Some of that Jerry Anderson stuff in all the wrong ways, I feel. <laughs> Yeah, I mean those. I they, again, they just, they just, they those two blew me away because I wasn't aware of either of those, and it was just like what? Because the? they even have this shot where they like, I guess they did the whole shot, the whole season of of Bishop, and they they never showed it to the guy who owned the studio, and then yeah. they the first thing, and he turned it. Okay, this is done. <laughs> You're not doing another yeah. one. <laughs> That was basically it, because he was so desperate to get away from puppets as well, they introduced them. Yeah. Let's shoot some normal people from far away so they can walk <laughs> properly. Let's weirdly mix these concepts together. Yeah, it, it's one of those things, like, Jim Henson, before he died, was trying to go that way. He was trying to make his his puppets more and more and more realistic. And, again, you, it's that whole Uncanny Valley thing. It's like, once you get to... Bishop and they're really trying to do the faces even more realistic and stuff. Thunderbirds work better because they look yeah. more like puppets. You know, they have the bigger eyes and you know, I still remember when I was a kid at the local cost when I was a teen at uh, the local LA comic monthly show, they would give me a table and let me draw at it and stuff. And I had this one guy come and I drew a, a Scott Tracy, a more realistic <laughs> Scott Tracy and stuff. And the guy comes up to the front of the did you know that the Thunderbird puppet's eyes were approximately 45% larger than... You know, it's like, no, I didn't. Well, okay. You know? <laughs> but I do now. I do now. <laughs> yeah. No, they're much... I think there's a reason why Thunderbirds is still the most successful Jerry Anderson thing. And Well, and it's such a wonderful concept. It's like, it's like I, mean, yeah. I, I still kind of try to wrap my... I always thought that's how I would do Fantastic Four if I ever did Fantastic Four. It's oh, yeah. It's just about saving people, you know? It's like even if you go back to the first uh, Superman movie, you know, he doesn't punch anybody. He's just nice. like, save people the whole time you know it's like i'm so sick of all these superhero movies as ells ends up with someone hitting somebody else or blasting somebody else or you know it's like figure it out <laughs> do something yeah. else. 
Yeah, there's definitely a market for that because at the moment, yeah, superhero movies is it does come down to who can punch who harder sometimes, and it's yeah. like this isn't yeah. this isn't what I want. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, I like people punching other people on occasion, but <laughs> you know when it's when it's everything, it it does get definitely I, I, again the, the great quote from Time Bandits from Napoleon. I like when the the, the the guys are up on stage doing the things. I like little people hitting each other. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's what it feels like. I like superheroes hitting each other. It's the same <laughs> basic concept. Yeah. 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 Um, that was a really interesting diversion. Thank you. <laughs> so to wrap up, you've spoken that we have got more Hellcop to come. Do you have an idea of how long you want it to run for? Oh, I'd like to run for a while. Uh, I'd like to, you know, I'm, I'm fine doing it for as long as it will it will go. Uh, it's at least going to be ten issues, uh, and depending on where sales go, I mean, if sales went kept the same that they are right now, then I'd be perfectly happy to keep going with it. Um, but now there's also options too if that doesn't work out. I mean, with because we just did a Stone Kickstarter for Wilson Eyes old. Uh, thing that we're going to be coming out with new stuff so kickstarter is always an option and you know there's always ways now there's there's lots of ways to get stuff out now that, that didn't exist before yeah the only, pro the only problem with kickstarter is you don't hit as many people as you do if you yeah comic store. i mean you make but you make money you make you, financially it works but you know you even on a very successful kickstarter maybe there's a couple few thousand yeah. People who donated, and you know, Hellcop selling about eight thousand copies right now. You know, even on uh, issue seven. So, and it started at forty thousand. So, um, I can't match. I can't get that. I need to be more Mister Social Media, I guess, and have a gazillion <laughs> followers and stuff. <laughs> I mean, that that does. From my experience, that does seem to help with Kickstarters. From what I've seen is yeah. a lot of it is social media traction, which, you know, but then again, I think at the same time, there are a lot of Kickstarter. I know I've backed several Kickstarter projects that haven't made the funding <laughs> um, just for one reason or another, because the bigger projects do tend to sort of swallow the the interest. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's. I think, it, like I say, it's a double-edged sword because it does work financially, well, if it gets funded. Um, yeah. But it does see it is a much smaller audience yeah. than you get through traditional publishing. Yeah. Um, it seems to work for some people um, yeah. and more power to them. So I'm assuming, it, so it's Shadowline you're under, under Image, isn't it? Jim Valentino, yeah. Yeah. Jim and I have been friends for ages, so, you know, that's, that's how that works out, you know. And Jim, pretty much, we see eye to eye creatively on stuff, and so it's like, it's very much an open, an open door policy. In fact, I'm working right now on uh, on uh, co-writing. They're doing the last Shadowhawk on the 30th anniversary. Oh. Yeah, that's good. With Philip Tan doing the art chores, and then I'm doing a couple issues of a Marvel thing that I'm not supposed to talk about yet. <laughs> they never let you. <laughs> Yeah. They never let you. Yeah, it, it's bizarre the number of people we've sort of spoken to, and they've not mentioned it. And then within sort of a few months, they've had something come out of Marvel. And we're like, ah, yeah, we know you can talk about that. It's fine. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, that's the big two for you. Um, 
Well, it's been it's been really great. I've really yeah. enjoyed this. It's been fun. We answered all my questions. There were a couple of others, but um, they were answered within answers to others. Okay. So that's worked really well. Well, again, thank you guys for the attention you've given my work. I really appreciate it. Well, we're, we're hoping for more Hellcop. We will keep covering Hellcop. When there's a second trade out, I'm going to persuade Zach that we'll do another, we'll do another podcast episode on it. <laughs> it was really amazing to be quoted on the back of the my. Uh, they picked some of the worst paragraphs of my review to shove on the back of the trade. They went on uh, the. I was I was highly embarrassed because that was not my best <laughs> reviewing work. Sorry about that. <laughs> That's I really I was really touched, but I thought I know I could have given you a better quote. Um, but yeah, so we are big fans of Hellcop. We hope it continues. We look forward to seeing what else you can do and we'll be doing. So, yeah, thank you very much. You bet.